We are in the Gospel of John still for many moons. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the black Bible in the pews in front of you. You're also welcome to use your Bible app or the internet, as long as you promise, promise, promise not to use Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or Snapchat or Vine. Nah, that's not a thing anymore. All right, we're in John chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 15. Friends, there is a kind of obedience to God that is actually disobedience. There is a kind of obedience that is actually rebellion. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son, the parable that Jesus told? Well, when we hear about that story, we, we, we always think about the younger son. And you remember his sin and his rebellion. The younger son rebelled against his father by taking his inheritance, fleeing to a faraway land, living in open and egregious and unrepentant sin. And that's one kind of rebellion. It's the obvious kind of rebellion. Ten out of ten people look at the younger son and what he did and, you know, survey says it's rebellion. But as we read the story, as we listen to it, we forget about the older brother. According to Jesus, the older brother, he stays home and he obeys all the rules. You know, he probably, if he lived in the Christian South, he'd say, oh, yes, sir, when his dad told him to do something. He'd probably help around, help with all the chores around the house. He'd probably go to all the Bible studies. He's just an all-around great kid. He's so obedient that he can look his father in the face with a completely straight face and say that he has never disobeyed a command. And yet when the younger brother comes home in brokenness, in true repentance, humbled by what he experienced out there in the world and sin, the older brother can't forgive him. The older brother cannot celebrate his dead brother coming home, his dead brother coming back to life. His heart is cold towards his brother. And then his heart is cold towards his father. And ultimately, his heart is cold towards grace. Friends, this is another kind of rebellion. It is the rebellion of pride. It's a religious rebellion. It's a rebellion through obedience. It's the kind of rebellion that we see in the Pharisees as we read the Gospels, who, by the way, are the people that Jesus is taking aim at as he's telling this parable. The parable of the prodigal son teaches us that there is an obvious kind of rebellion against God, and then, ironically, counterintuitively, there is a kind of rebellion that looks like obedience. In this morning's text, we're going to be introduced to a very similar idea. The idea that according to Jesus, there are two kinds of unbelief. The first is the obvious kind of unbelief. It's the kind of unbelief that looks at Jesus and his ministry and his miracles and says, yeah, I'm not buying it. You know, this guy's a charlatan. He's a scam artist. He's a false prophet. You can see that in the Jewish leaders in this morning's text that we're going to look at here in a few minutes. But they don't believe in Jesus no one would ever accuse them of believing in Jesus. Their unbelief is proud. It's in your face. Wear it like a badge. 
But then there's this other kind of unbelief. This is the unbelief that confesses faith. And it's tricky because it professes to believe in Jesus even as it denies him. This is the kind of unbelief that says, yeah, I'm on team Jesus. And by the way, I'm super pumped to be here. Right? So let me know, like, what do I need to do? How can I serve? Tell me where to go, what to do. I'm on team Jesus. You can see this kind of belief in the crowds of Jerusalem in this morning's text. You can also see it in many local churches, particularly in the Christian South. Maybe to a greater or lesser degree in every church. Maybe even here at Sixth Avenue. We're going to examine that kind of unbelief for the rest of our time together in this morning's sermon. So pray with me, and then we will jump right in. Lord, if there is in any of us a heart of unbelief masquerading as faith, we pray that you would reveal it to us, and that you would give us the gift of true, abiding, saving faith. Amen. Now... We're just going to follow the same pattern we've been following so far through the book of John. If it ain't broke, don't try to fix it, okay? We're going to walk through the text. We're going to try to understand some of the nuances, the details, some of the historical, cultural background, all that. And then we're going to walk back through and we're going to, we're going to dig a little deeper afterwards, okay? But this morning's text is pretty long. We're going from chapter 2, verse... Uh, oh, I know what verse we're in, right? Chapter 2, I think, yeah, we're in verse 23, Yeah. No, a little bit earlier than that. 13, huh? 18. 18. I know that. I was checking to see if you guys knew. (laughs) Even it's right here in my notes. Oh, man. Moving on. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to be in chapter 2, verse 18, all the way down through chapter 3, verse 15. So there's a lot of ground for us to cover. We're going to try to do this. So stay with me. Hey, open Bibles. Let's be ready to look at the text and make sure that I'm not talking crazy. That's actually right there in the Word, okay? Now, you'll remember that in last week's text, Jesus cleansed the temple, right? And as we open this week's text, we begin to encounter some of the aftermath of that event. The Jews come to Jesus, and essentially, they put him on trial, right? You can see that right here at the beginning in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things, right? Now, Real quick, the Jews here doesn't refer to just like a random group of Israelites who had a problem with what Jesus was saying and doing. It it refers most likely to the Sanhedrin, which was like a group of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, kind of the the head honchos of of Judaism centered right there in Jerusalem. And and they kind of hold the reins of power. And so, yeah, if somebody's going to investigate Jesus and check Jesus and be like, hey, do you have the authority to do these things? It's going to be the Sanhedrin. So, They approach Jesus, and essentially, that's what they say. They say, what gives you the right to do what you've done here? What gives you the right to flip over the money changers' tables and and drive out the oxen and the sheep and to cause the commotion that you caught? What gives you the right? What authority do you have? Now, if hearing that question gives you a little bit of deja vu, there's there's a reason for that. It's because back in chapter 1, John the Baptist was doing his thing, right? He was preaching, he was, you know, the axe is at the root, everyone repent, that sort of thing. And he was baptizing, and the religious leaders didn't like it. 
And they sent a council out from Jerusalem down to where John the Baptist was to basically ask him the same question. What gives you the right to do what you're doing here? What kind of authority do you have? What are your spiritual bona fides? Now, you may remember that the Jews that approached John the Baptist, they were sent from this council in Jerusalem. Well, this is the council that Jesus is encountering in this morning's text. And it's a very big deal. Jesus is being asked for his credentials basically in front of the board of trustees. You know, there's the Senate committee. The, the grand jury is putting Jesus on trial and they're saying, what evidence do you have that can show us that you really have the authority to do these things? And so they ask for a sign. According to these Jewish leaders, if you can perform a sign for them, then they'll know that you're really from heaven. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. Look at verses 19 through 21. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. <laughs> Here we see Jesus doing what he always does, what, what, what he alone can do so well. He, he talks to people at a level that's so deep that they can't quite grasp what he's saying. His response is, oh, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it. The Jews don't understand what he's saying. They probably look at each other with a, you know, get a load of this guy, you know, kind of a, like, drinking a little bit too much wine kind of a thing going on here. I mean, just destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. King Herod, with all of his money and all of his resources and all of his manpower, He's been rebuilding this temple for the last 46 years. And this guy says he'll rebuild it in three days. It's kind of laughable. And in verse 21, John tells us, he tells the readers what Jesus really means. What Jesus really meant is this. My body is the temple. Right, you remember, the temple is just special. The temple is the temple because it's the place where God's holy presence dwells. And we learned back in chapter 1 that in chapter 1, verse 14, that the Spirit of God dwells in the body of Christ. And so what Jesus is saying is, he's saying, listen, I am the true temple. God is in your midst, right here, right now, in the flesh. And by the way, I can do whatever I want to do to this temple, because I am the Lord of the temple. I have the right to cleanse this temple. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You're going to kill me. And in so doing, you will destroy the true temple of God. But in three days, I will rise from the grave. And when I do, that will be your sign. And then in verse 22, there's a parenthetical comment about the disciples and them believing in Jesus. We're going to save that for another time. And so the first of many tense moments between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem comes to a close. And it seems like Jesus wins. And as we move on to verse 23, it feels like the narrative begins to move in a better, happier, more positive, less tense direction. All right, so let's look at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Wow. 
Here we see that although Jesus did cleanse the temple when he was in Jerusalem, that's not all he did. He did all kinds of signs and wonders. And apparently, many people believed in him because of those signs. That's good, right? Well, maybe not. Look at verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Now, there's something going on here in the text that uh, you may be missing if you're not reading. Anybody reading the Greek text here? No? Okay. Unless you're reading it in the Greek, you may miss it. But the word believe in verse 23 is the same Greek word in verse 24 that's translated in your English Bibles as did not entrust himself. So basically what the text is saying, like if you were to read it in Greek, it would say something like this. Many people believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. Jesus didn't believe in their belief. And then John says something very interesting. He tells us why Jesus didn't just accept their belief. It says, because he knew them. And then in verse 25, he goes a little deeper and he says, because Jesus knows what is in man. He understands the heart of man. Now, remember what we saw with the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders didn't believe in Jesus, and they demanded a sign as a form of authentication, and Jesus wouldn't give them one. But here, the people who saw the signs that Jesus did perform, they seemed to believe, but Jesus says that their belief is suspect. They seem to trust in Jesus, but Jesus doesn't trust them. And then we come to Nicodemus beginning in chapter 3. And we see from chapter 3, verse 1, that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. You see that right there. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He's not just any Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. That's what it means to be a ruler of the Jews. He was part of the Sanhedrin, the guys that we were talking about earlier. Okay, the same guys who sent the committee out to investigate John the Baptist. The same guys who came to Jesus and said, hey, where are your credentials for doing this temple cleansing? And then not long after we are introduced to Nicodemus, we see that he actually approaches Jesus. Look at verse 2. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And here we see what appears to be a profession of faith, right? He begins by addressing Jesus as rabbi, which is a sign of respect. If you think Jesus is a charlatan, you're not going to call him rabbi. He says, hey, we know you're from God. How do we know? Because we see all the signs. The Pharisees, they're asking you for a sign, but I'm telling you, I've seen the signs, and I know, it's obvious, you are from heaven. And then Jesus throws us another curveball, right? I mean, what would you do if you were in Jesus' shoes, right? You've just cleansed the temple. It's drama, drama, drama. The, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to you, and they're investigating you. They're interrogating you. They're putting you on trial. It's a really big deal, really stressful time, probably full of a lot of anxiety. And then later in the night, one of those Pharisees, one of the people who investigate you, come to you, and they... And they go, I believe. I like, I'm not like those guys. I believe. You probably would be like, man, praise God. I'm so excited. 
I mean, you're part of this group of people who are so hard in heart, and yet you seem to be supple of heart. Wow, glad to have you on the team. <laughs> let's get you a badge. Let's get you an ID number. Let's give you a job. Let's put you to work. Praise God. I'm so happy that you're here with us. But that's not what happens. That's not what Jesus says. It's not what he does. Let's look at Jesus' response in verses 3 through 8. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wills. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In these six verses, Jesus does something very interesting. He gives us a peek behind the curtain of the human heart. And he breaks down the anatomy of true belief, of saving faith. He starts by telling Nicodemus that the only way that he can see the kingdom of God is if he's born again. Now, you have to remember that the language of seeing that Jesus uses here, the only way you can see the kingdom of God, in John's gospel, seeing is the language of faith. Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? We learned that back in chapter 1. It's also true throughout the rest of Scripture, but especially in John's gospel, to see is to believe, and it's to have true belief, true faith. And so in this conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus is saying something like this. The kingdom of God that you've been waiting for, that you've invested all your hope in, that God has promised, the kingdom is here right now in me. But the only way that you'll be able to actually believe in me, to actually see the kingdom in me, is if you are born again. And that's pretty confusing <laughs> for Nicodemus. In verse 4, Nicodemus says, how can a man be born again? Right? And that's a good question. How can a man be born again? Uh, not to be crude, but uh, Nicodemus is basically saying, you know, he's wondering, how can a man crawl back up inside his mother's womb and, you know, go through that whole process all over again? And... Here you see how at home Nicodemus really is amongst the Pharisees, right? He really is a Pharisee. Because you remember, back after the temple cleansing, Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And the Pharisees, they heard that and they were thinking literally, this big building is going to be destroyed and you're literally going to rebuild it in three days. They, they didn't understand the spiritual nature of what Jesus was saying. And here, Nicodemus listens to Jesus talk about being reborn and he understands it literally. And so he's trying... You know, he's got his anatomy and physiology chart out, and he's trying to make sense, and how can that possibly happen? But Jesus is kind. He graciously explains what's going on. He says there's one kind of birth. That's natural birth. That's being born of water. You know, water breaks, mom goes into labor, that sort of thing. But then Jesus says there's another kind of birth, a spiritual birth. 
And he says that birth, the spiritual birth, that's what you need to experience. That's what you need to go through in order to truly see me for who I am and believe in me. And then in verse 8, Jesus ends with an illustration, right? He says, the wind blows where it wishes. Now think about that for a second. You go outside on a windy day, can you see the wind? Can you grab it? No. Can you smell it? Can you taste it? No. How do you know when the wind is at work? Well, look at the trees. You see the leaves blow, and you know that the wind is at work. You know that something is happening there. Jesus uses this as an illustration for what true belief is like. He says, you know, you you may not see God actively working to give someone rebirth, give them eyes to see, ears to hear, a new heart to believe. You may not actively see that, but if you ever see someone who has true faith, you can know that God has been at work in their heart. This is what theologians call the doctrine of regeneration. And the doctrine of regeneration says that in order for anyone to believe, to truly believe in Jesus, they must be first born again. Now, that might sound the opposite of what you have perhaps heard growing up in the church. Or maybe if you're a new Christian, it doesn't really make sense to you, right? We think that to be a born-again Christian is something that happens after our faith. But that is the exact opposite of what Jesus says here. Jesus says that we are first born of God. We are first regenerated. We are first given this new birth, and then we are able to believe. Now listen, if that's a bombshell for you, you're not alone. In verse 9, Nicodemus, he asks Jesus, he says, how can this be? And and then you have to love Jesus' response in verse 10. Look what he says in verse 10 there. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Here Jesus is saying, "Uh, aren't you supposed to be the guy who knows everything? Aren't you the Pharisee? Don't you have the first five books of the Bible memorized? Don't you settle disputes of the law? Don't people come to you for spiritual advice? Aren't you supposed to be leading people into faith? And yet you don't understand this. I guess you don't know as much as you think you do. This is pretty significant when you remember the fact that Nicodemus was part of the crew who was there investigating Jesus. And now that Nicodemus comes to Jesus in private, Jesus says, hey, I'm reversing the investigation. You came to investigate me, but it seems like you're the one who needs to be investigated. Now look at verses 11 and 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus is basically saying, you don't believe the superficial stuff I say to you. How can you believe the things that are carrying divine weight and significance? And then in verse 14, Jesus references uh, an account from the Old Testament that we read about this morning, Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. We're going to talk about that a little more next week. But just for now, know that that points to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So that's the text. We've walked through chapter 2, verse 18, through chapter 3, all the way down to verse 15. Now let's dig in a little deeper and see what else God has for us.
I think we can learn a lot from these 28 verses. But I want to spend all of our time this morning driving home one main point. Here it is. You ready, note takers? Here's the main point. Uh, Maybe if you don't have enough space on your page, flip over to a, a page with a lot of room to write, okay? If you have an ink that's maybe on the verge of going dry, get a fresh one. Here's the main point of the sermon. Signs cannot save you. That's it. Signs can't save you. My joke didn't land either. That's okay. Keep me humble, God. Signs cannot save you. A famous Christian apologist was once in a debate with an atheist, and he asked his opponent what it would take for him to accept the existence of God. And the atheist replied that it would have to be something like, you know, he would step out of his house one day and he would see this obviously omnipotent being, you know, a very Clash of the Titans kind of a moment. The, the thunder would be crashing and the lightning would be striking and, and this obviously deific being would have to call out to him from the heavens with a voice that could only be from God and, and he would have to say, I am God. And, uh, and it'd have to be all very spectacular in that way. The atheist said, yeah, I could believe if that happened. And everyone in the crowd had a good laugh because he was really selling it, you know, really yucking it up, really taking a, a jab at his opponent. And after the laughter died down, the Christian apologist said, are you sure you wouldn't just say that that was a hallucination? We like to keep things simple. We think that I would believe in God if he would reveal himself to me in a way that was obvious. You know, to all of my five senses. If he would do that, I would believe. If I could see a miracle, if God were to come down and perform a sign and wonder in front of me, I would believe. But the whole point of what we've learned this morning is that that is not the way that faith works. The thread that connects all of this morning's text together is the link between signs and belief. The Jewish leaders... They asked Jesus for a sign. Why? So that they could believe. But Jesus knew. He knew that even if they saw a sign, they wouldn't believe. We're going to see that throughout the rest of John's gospel. If you have a few minutes, more like an hour this afternoon, I'd encourage you to just go and sit down with John's gospel and read it all the way through. If you do, you'll see that the Jewish leaders encounter Jesus in his miraculous form over and over again, and they do not believe Not once. Then John says, he tells us, that the people in Jerusalem believed in Jesus because of the many signs that he did during Passover. And here it seems like, ooh, maybe signs do work. Maybe signs can save us. Maybe signs do equal faith. Right as we're about to celebrate, right as we're reading, people are getting saved. John sucks the wind right out of our sails. And he tells us that the belief of the crowds in Jerusalem is not true belief at all. All right, did you catch that? That's the part where Jesus says, I don't believe in their belief. I don't trust their belief. And then John explains why. It says, because he knew the heart of man. What is it that Jesus knows about the heart of man that leads him to not trust their belief? Well, he knows that our hearts are fickle, right? I mean, he knows that the human heart can become excited one minute 
and dull the next. Right? The heart can be infatuated in one moment and then bored in the blink of an eye. The heart can love today and absolutely despise tomorrow. There was once a family that sat right there on that second row uh, every Sunday. They came and they visited. The very first Sunday they came up, oh my goodness, we've never heard preaching like this. We've never seen people so loving and kind and friendly and the prayers were so amazing and oh, we love this church. And, and then a couple weeks later, the wife came up and told me, oh, you're going to have to build a bigger building. God's going to bless what you're doing here. Pretty soon you're going to have hundreds, maybe thousands of people and oh, it's going to be huge and oh, I just can't believe what God's doing here in this church. They were gone within a month. The human heart is fickle. It's easily excitable. But to be excited is not the same thing as to believe. A heart that's tainted by sin is not only emotionally erratic, but it's also imprecise. It can be excited about and trust in all of the wrong things. These people in Jerusalem... They're not believing in Jesus. They're believing in the signs. They're not believing in the one that the signs are pointing to. And so Jesus says, yeah, I don't, I don't trust this. Think about the way that so many churches do ministry. The way that they orchestrate the lights and the sound. The way that they have music strumming in the background as someone begins to pray. The way that the pastor preaches his sermon the way that everything on a Sunday morning is conducted to lead up to a point where you get people at a fever pitch of excitement and then you call on them to make a decision and then they make a decision and maybe they profess to believe and they come down and there's a spontaneous baptism which makes about as much sense as a spontaneous wedding and they come down and they get baptized and we're all celebrating and we're all so happy and aren't we so excited so many people came to believe But then what happens to those people? Do they continue to believe? The, everything that happened there in that Sunday morning service was designed to agitate the emotions, to get people really pumped, really excited, to get the juices flowing. And it's because so many churches fail to understand this, and they equate excitability with faith. And Jesus says that they are dead wrong. As a pastor, one of the things that I try to communicate to my other elders is that we cannot entrust our faith to people's emotions. We cannot believe in other people's belief when all of their belief seems to be resting in something that can be here today and gone tomorrow. What we have to trust in is when people persist in their belief. When they're excited today and then they're faithful tomorrow and the next day and the day after that and the year after that. That is the kind of thing that should get us excited. That is the thing that we should celebrate. That is the kind of faith that we should hold up and give glory to God for. It's true faith. Now, I've gotten off track here. We have the Jews asking for a sign. And then we have the, the, the crowd who claims to believe in Jesus because of his signs, the signs that he performed. But then there's Nicodemus. And I think John is doing something very interesting here. I think he's combining the Jews demanding a sign and the crowds who have received a sign into one person. 
I think this really happened, but I think John is putting it here for us to see this case study in unbelief. Unbelief. What do you mean, Sean? Uh, Nicodemus came and he called Jesus rabbi and he said, we see the signs and, and we believe and we know you're from heaven. But did you see uh, how in, in this account Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night? Did you see that? Why do you think John includes that detail here? He, di- he didn't have to include that. He could have just said Nicodemus came to Jesus. There are hundreds of interactions that Jesus has with people throughout the entire uh, Gospel of John where John doesn't say he comes by day or he comes by night. Why does he say he comes by night here? Well, you have to remember the way that darkness works in the Gospel of John. We saw in the very beginning, Jesus is the light. He's the light of the world, and we're going to see that as we walk through the rest of the Gospel. And darkness represents the world. Darkness represents sin. Darkness represents unbelief. John is telling us something about the faith of Nicodemus here. It's a faith that can only approach Jesus in the dark. It's the kind of faith that doesn't risk. It's the kind of faith that fears man and loss more than it fears God. You'll see this false faith over and over again throughout Jesus' ministry. But for now, let me just give you one example. John chapter 12, it's, it's a very similar phenomenon as to what we see here with Nicodemus. John 12, 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Friends, there's a kind of belief that is no belief at all. It's a belief that fears man more than it trusts in God. It's the kind of faith that cannot endure social ostracism. It's really important that you understand this. It's really important that you understand this right now, where we are at this point in history as American Christians. These men wouldn't fully trust in Jesus because they were afraid of what the Jews would do and they'd be kicked out of the synagogue. That's probably not going to happen to us today. What may happen for you because of your faith in Jesus is that you may lose your job. May, it's already happening to a lot of people. You refuse to call a boy a girl. You refuse to engage in some kind of sinful behavior that the world is celebrating and even mandating through training policies. You lose your job, which means you can lose your retirement benefits. You can become a pariah in the community. I mean, maybe worse for some of us in this room, worse than losing our job and losing our financial security is just losing the love of men, to be not liked, to be ill thought of by our neighbors. Jesus says that's a kind of faith that's really not faith at all if you're not willing to count the cost of following him. I mean, think about it. If these authorities that profess to believe in Jesus really did believe in Jesus really believed in him, do you think that they would be afraid of the Pharisees? If they really believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the coming warrior king, who was going to reestablish justice on the earth, 
who was God in the flesh, who spoke the universe into existence, if they really believe that Jesus is who he said he was, would they be afraid of the Pharisees? What can the Pharisees do to you against God? When God's in your corner, who should you fear? No one. And yet they were afraid. Does that strike you as true belief? The Apostle Paul says that in order to be saved, we must not only believe with our hearts, but confess with our mouths. Only faith that is willing to confess itself and count the cost of that confession is true faith. And Nicodemus doesn't have it. You know, maybe he wants it. Maybe he wants to believe. Maybe he likes the idea of Jesus. He's a hopeful, positive kind of guy, glasses half full. You know, I could see myself being on Team Jesus, that kind of thing. But here's the thing about true belief. It's not something that you can work up in yourself. It's not something that if you have a dead, stony, unbelieving heart in your soul that you can just manufacture out of that dead, stony heart that is hostile towards God. The scripture is clear. In our sin, our believing mechanism, our heart, it's broken. That's what sin does to us. And so Jesus tells Nicodemus, right there, in the midst of his unbelief, his confusion, he says, the only way to really believe in me is to be born again. Is all this a little too complicated? A little confusing? I mean, why can't we just say that there's belief and there's unbelief, right? Why can't we just say that there's faith and unbelief? Why do we have to have this third category? Well, because Jesus gives us this category. You remember the parable of the sower? We we just read it. Uh, In that parable, Jesus teaches us about this same kind of thing at length. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Let's read verses 3 through 9. I'll read and you follow along with me. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Yeah, so Jesus here is telling the story of the evangelist, the man who takes the seed of the word of God, and he goes out and he casts it, and he throws it, and and the soil represents a human heart. And any human heart that that the evangelist encounters, he goes out and he scatters the seed, and he says, take God's word. And then he describes what happens in the heart of these people who receive God's word down into their soil. And then it's somewhat confusing to the disciples, and so Jesus is kind enough to explain it to them. Look at verse 18. Jesus is explaining, Hear then the parable of the sower and its meaning. 
When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That is what was sown along the path. So this is, you hear the word of God and you just reject it outright, right? That's probably the, the Jews. You know, you just don't even begin to receive it. It's not even a question. Now look at verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now, both of these last two kinds of soil are kinds where the seed goes down into the soil and then it appears to bear fruit. These are the people in the churches, you get them all excited, they're like, yeah, Team Jesus. These are the crowds in Jerusalem. We see the signs, we're excited. This is Nicodemus, I believe. But Jesus says both of these kinds of faith ultimately prove to not be faith, even though they appear to be so at first. And then finally he wraps it up in verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, isn't that interesting? Good soil. What is the difference between the seed that takes root and lives and thrives and all the seeds that die? What is the difference? It's the good soil. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. And that understand it, that's eyes to see and ears to hear. That's the one who truly believes in Jesus, like fully comprehends the reality of the gospel. And then that person will inevitably bear fruit, and there's different kinds of fruit that they can bear. Now, here's my question for you this morning. What determines the quality of the soil of our hearts? Are there just some of us who have better hearts than others? Some of us who come from better stock? Some of us who had better training and so our hearts are more pure than other people's? Were some of us just born with less sin and others of us with more sin? Did God just predestine some of us to believe and others of us to not believe and therefore our hearts are just, yeah, we're kind of preset that way? Not at all. What Jesus says here in these two words, good soil, is the same thing that Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. All of us have bad soil. All of our hearts are corrupt because of sin. All of us are in rebellion against God until God comes and gives us good soil. Until he comes and gives us the rebirth. Until he takes our old stony heart out and replaces it with a heart of flesh. Gives us the ability to see, to hear, to believe. It's okay to wrestle with this. It didn't make much sense to Nicodemus, right? He says, how can these things be? He's bewildered. He wants everything to be simple, clean. He wants it to be black and white, cut and dry, on or off, belief or unbelief. He wants to live in the kind of world where if someone sees a miracle, they will believe and that's that. But it's not that simple. That's not the kind of world we live in. The human heart is more complicated than that. Now, I imagine that uh, for those of you who have been here for all the sermons in John, you may be sitting here wondering about chapter 20. Chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Do you remember those verses? I said that they were kind of the linchpin of the whole 
book, kind of John's thesis statement. You may be wondering if there's a contradiction between what I'm saying here in in chapter 20. I'll, I'll read it for you. Now Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So is there a contradiction? I mean, I've said that signs can't save you, right? That you look at a sign, it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll believe. You could persist in unbelief, or you could think that you believe and really be confused. But John says, I'm writing these things down so that you can believe. What's the issue? Well, I think this is really where we get to the heart of this morning's text. This is where the sermon really comes together. In the case study of Nicodemus, Jesus is teaching us that our ability to see a sign and believe in what it signifies, namely Jesus, does not depend on us having eyes, but on us having spiritual eyes. So when John writes these things down in his gospel, these signs that Jesus performed, so that we would read about them and believe, he's assuming that the way we will believe is if the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see as we read. Consider the rest of the Bible. Actually, no, before you do that, consider this, consider what's happening here. What's the difference between the Jews and the disciples? I mean, flip back over to John real quick. Go back over to John chapter 2. Go to John chapter 2, verse 22. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And we know from the rest of the Bible that their belief was true belief. So what is the difference between the Jews and the disciples? Why do some not believe and others do? What's the difference between these unbelieving masses in Jerusalem and the disciples? What's the difference between Nicodemus and the disciples? Consider the rest of the story of salvation. Why do Peter and Judas both seem to deny Jesus, but the faith of one is proven to be true, whereas the faith of the other is shown to be false? They both walked with Jesus. They both heard the same sermons. They both saw the same signs. One believes, the other doesn't. Why does Demas go back out into the world, but Timothy and Titus remain faithful to the gospel? They both experience persecution. They both suffer tremendously. And yet, the suffering does not choke out one, but it does choke out the other. Why do Moses and Pharaoh both experience God's miraculous powers, all of his signs and wonders in Egypt. And yet Moses believes, but Pharaoh's heart grows harder and harder towards the Lord. Why do some people come into this church and taste the heavenly rains of God's grace? Why do they enjoy the the pleasure of the company of God's people the, the kindness of the Lord when he ministers to them through this body. 
when they sit under the preaching of his word, when, when the power of God is demonstrated through the reading and preaching of scripture, why do they come into that and then go back out to the desert wasteland of the world? But some stay. The answer is because signs cannot save us. If signs could save us, Pharaoh would believe just as much as Moses did. Judas would have persisted in his faith. Demas would not have gone back out to the world. If the sign of me preaching through God's word, the resurrected Christ, were enough to save us, every person who came in here on a Sunday morning would be saved, and they would remain, and they would be faithful. You take a hundred people, you stand them there in a room. Somehow, some way, you get God to come down and do a miracle for them, a big, obvious miracle. Which of them will believe, truly believe? Only those who have been given the ability to believe. Only those who have been born again by the Spirit of God. Because signs cannot save us. Only God can. What's really fascinating about the way that this book comes together is that John is not concerned that the people, for example, who are here in this room this morning, he's not concerned that you weren't there to see the actual signs of Jesus. In the mind of John, it's enough for you to witness those signs as you hear about them and read about them as they are recorded in God's Word. In the mind of John, for you to receive Jesus through his word is a sign. And it's a powerful sign. I'm not here to play games this morning. I'm not here to give you a motivational speech. I've tried that before. It doesn't go well. I don't have anything to offer. What I'm here this morning to do is to get you to believe. If I can but I can't. All I can do is stand up here and hold up God's word for you and I can just point you to Jesus and I can say, look at him. Believe. But that's all I can do. The spirit has to move in your heart. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, Sean, I want to believe. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of my life of sin. I want to believe, but I just can't bring myself to believe. What can you do for me this morning? Nothing more than what I've already done. Nothing more. But God can do more. The power of God and the gospel is so much more powerful than what I can do for you this morning. So friends, I would encourage you to sit here this morning and pray and ask God to give you eyes to see to give you ears to hear, to open up your heart so that you can believe. And, then, and by the way, I'm not just talking to the obvious unbelievers in the room. If you're here and you're like, yeah, I don't really believe. He's talking to me. I get it. I may be even more this morning talking to us, a church, our members. There may be some among us, like the crowds in Jerusalem. There may be some among us, like Nicodemus, who think that we believe, but don't. We've trusted in all the wrong things. We've gotten excited about Jesus. Maybe we've gotten excited about Sixth Avenue Community Church, and man, it feels good to be plugged into a community, and I enjoy being here with these people on a Sunday morning and a Wednesday night. 
and I'm excited about some of the things that I think Jesus has done in my life, and, and that's really what you're trusting in, instead of actually trusting in Jesus. I know it's hard to believe as we sit here in this room, but you could be loving this church more than you love Jesus, and that's not true love. That's not saving love. You could be believing in me and my ministry more than you believe in Jesus. That is not true faith. There could be people here this morning who think that they believe and will not find out that they don't believe until the time to count the cost culturally comes full steam ahead. The day may be coming, I don't know. For you, it could be next week, next month, next year, next decade. Where to follow Jesus really costs you something and you have to count that cost and you're unwilling to do it. You don't want to be put out of the synagogue. You fear man more than you fear God. One day that may be exposed to you. I can't control that. I can't stop it. All I can do is hold Jesus up before you today and tell you that if you think that that might be you, that you should pray. And you should ask God to give you true saving faith that can withstand what is certainly coming. I don't really have a big way to end the sermon. I think we should just end in prayer. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are so fickle, so easily deceived. But you see all. You know clearly. You know what's in our hearts. So God, we pray that you would work in our hearts. We pray that there would not be in any among us an evil, unbelieving heart. We pray that if there is, you will root it out, that you will expose it, and that you will give us true faith, faith that endures, faith that loves you, faith that truly trusts in you. We ask all this knowing that you are capable of doing it, and so much more. Amen.